Good evening. It's very, very nice to see you. Thank you very much for coming along on such a fine evening when you could have been cutting the grass. The subject is philosophy and the power of concentration. It means what it says. And I hope that in the course of the evening we'll come to gather some sense of how these two meet, philosophy and concentration. And some sense of the need for concentration, some sense of what it is, and some sense of if we don't develop this power of concentration, what a loss it will be. My son said to me when I was writing this talk, he looked over my shoulder and said, uh, just to annoy me, do you think anyone's going to come to that lecture? So, double thank you for giving the lie to him. In the School of Philosophy course, and as you know, of course, is run each term, there is a quotation from a Frenchman called Jacques Lucéron, who went blind at the age of seven. And uh, he was in a school accident, but he turned out to be a remarkable man and led a significant part of the Renaissance to the Germans in the Second World War. And he started learning German at the age of 16, just in order to be able to do his job in the resistance better. And after the war, off he went to America, and he lectured in French literature in the USA until 1971, when he died at the age of 47. Point is, he was blind. And here are three paragraphs from the book that is written. I don't know if he wrote it, or whether it was written about him. But the name of the book is And There Was Light. And it's good. He said, Because of my blindness, I had developed a new faculty. Strictly speaking, all men have it, but almost all forget to use it. The faculty is attention. In order to live without eyes, it is necessary to be very attentive to remain hour after hour in a state of wakefulness or receptiveness. Indeed, attention is not simply a virtue of intelligence or the result of education and something one can easily do without. It is a state of being. It is a state without which we shall never be able to perfect ourselves. In its truest sense, it is the listening post of the universe. And then he goes on to say, I was very attentive. I was more attentive than any of my comrades. All blind persons are or can be. Thus they gain the power of being completely present, sometimes even the power of changing life around them, a power the civilization of the 20th century no longer possesses being attentive unlocks a sphere of reality that no one suspects. If, for instance, I walked along a path without being attentive, completely immersed in myself, I would not even know whether trees grew along the way, nor how tall they were, or whether they had leaves. When I awakened my attention, however, every tree immediately came to me. This must be taken quite literally. 
every single tree projected its form, its weight, its movement, even if it was motionless, in my direction. I could indicate its trunk and the place where its first branches started, even when several feet away. Now, this is some example of the power of attention, where it can change ears into eyes. But this is a man speaking from his experience, and such people are to be trusted. And he gives this sense of also bringing him completely into the present and being able to influence others, be of service to others. And he also says it's a power that has been lost in the present century. Now, we might say, well, animals can do this too, and of course they can. You watch a cat following a fly on a window or something. He's absolutely transfixed. The movement, the sound of the fly, the food potential is captivating. And with his whole mind, he connects, follows, is focused, and very difficult to distract the cat. And the other day, I had a knife in my hand, and one of these spotlights was in a knife I had, and I noticed the cat was moving very sharply as it followed something on the ceiling. It was just light. So I I just then used these controls. It was like an electrical controls. I could just turn it that way, and the cat would go like this, and then this way, and the cat would go like this, and so forth. And the cat was completely taken and concentrated on this little um, this little beam of light. Now, here is an animal with a concentration capacity of perhaps only a fraction of a human's, but we do admire it. And all animals of prey have similar powers. Uh, You could watch a heron as he stands and waits for a fish to pass. They stand for a long time. And when the fish comes, they haven't. Here's a more extreme example. The angler fish. It was also slightly less attractive. But they live at very deep levels where there is no light, so they don't need to shave. But he has there a fishing rod at the front. And the little red bit is the bait. Now, it's not a real bait, it's actually part of him, but it looks like bait to a passing fish. And for some reason, (laughs) passing fish don't see the mouth below, which is just waiting open, as it is now. So, anyway, he sits there, and he could sit there for a week, and he doesn't want to miss his meal when it passes. And it is some power of attention to keep your mind on the job for that length of time. But it is, you'd have to say, an involuntary attention, automatic concentration. And we too possess this power when, for instance, we would be in an accident or there'd be a very, very significant telephone call come through. All our attention will be focused on that one thing and everything else will be forgotten. And even in these occasions where there's an accident, particularly car accidents, people find that everything slows down. I mean, that's the mind, because of its intensity, makes everything slow down. So you see everything in slow motion. This is a very common experience. But we can develop voluntary attention as well. And so 
now you're practicing voluntary attention, listening to this talk. And when you listen to music, it is the same. When you listen to the news, it's the same. When you walk along the road, it's the same. It's voluntary attention. And if you're not practicing voluntary attention, then you're dreaming about other things, which is a very, very common activity, and most of that is particularly useful. So, what we are looking at tonight is how to develop this voluntary attention. One of the Impressionist painters chose to depict it in this picture, 1864, something. A beautiful painting of a girl reading. And in the same museum, this is in uh, Musée d'Orsay, in Paris, last week, this lady was copying that Sure. Behind her, another yeah, impressionist uh, work of art. But if you'd chosen a particularly intricate piece with these branches just through the whole picture, and you have to admire that power of attention. It's great to watch her as she did it. So the questions for us tonight are, when are we concentrated? And in terms of what is possible to achieve through concentration, what could we achieve? And indeed, is this faculty, this power of concentration, underdeveloped in us through mere neglect? And if it is, what can we do about it? Now, I'm going to quote this evening a number of different luminaries from India because they have really tackled the mind. I mean, for thousands of years they've tackled the mind. I mean, really investigated it quite scientifically. And they even have words for mind that we don't have. And they're really worth hearing. One such sage was Swami Vivekananda, who lived time of this Impressionist artist, actually. He said that the whole of education is summed up in three words. Devotion, discipline, and concentration. Without devotion or dedication or deep interest in something, without that, you can't have discipline. So, with devotion, you get discipline, because then your mind becomes directly directed and easily directed to a thing that it's devoted to. And then once there's discipline, then there's concentration. Concentration develops naturally from discipline. So concentration doesn't just fall out of the sky upon some lucky person. It is the result of these steps. Devotion first, or strong interest, or dedication. And then discipline comes from that, and then comes the concentration. We as teachers and parents can make a big mistake with children. We see them not paying attention to their studies, and we say, won't you pay attention or concentrate? And we keep saying, concentrate, pay attention, concentrate, pay attention. And we forget the other two steps. Because unless they are motivated to give their attention to what's in front of them, they can't do it. So we need to take a step back with them and come to the motivation step, which is the first of them. They must develop devotion to the subject or even devotion to the teacher, it doesn't matter. They have to be devoted to something to want to do it. 
then the discipline to do it will come about and then concentration will develop after that. But it is the third stage. It's not the first stage. And when we have a child who finds it difficult to concentrate or when we find it difficult to concentrate, then we need to look at the motivation that is behind it. And if we can help or begin to get that right, then concentration itself will begin to come right. Indeed, a, a lecture on concentration is about as valid as a lecture on physical fitness. I mean, you could go to a talk on physical fitness and say very interesting and walk out and spend the rest of the week on a couch uh, with a telly. If we don't practice concentration, then it won't develop. So, in fact, in these three steps, you could regard this as the first one in terms of perhaps arousing some dedication to the subject of concentration. And then, if you can decide that this is very important, then you will take the steps to develop it. So, we need to practice. So, here's the first step. Here is a glass. And in a moment, I'm going to strike this glass with this weapon. And there will be a a sound. Now, all I want you to do is to listen to that sound. And, of course, it won't last forever because it's just a glass. But when you can't hear the sound anymore, still listen. And I, I may, if I'm in a good mood, strike it again. So you can practice for a second time, and in a very, very good mood, a third time. Right? I think I've got quite a good mood this evening. So, the exercise is one of listening. So, just to listen to the sound right to the end. And to nothing else, don't bother about anything else at all. End of first exercise. Now, you may have noticed that the attention will hear the sound and will follow it and will keep with it even when this physical sound itself has long disappeared. So, it's not necessary for there to be a physical sound there just to follow it, follow it, follow it. And it's following it into silence. Now, the silence is where it started from. So, it starts in silence, manifests for a little period, disappears into the silence. But the attention which we can give to it, the concentration, also starts in silence, 
and persists and also ends in silence. And it's rather like all the events of the day, they come, appear and disappear. They come from the unknown, they appear for a moment, and they disappear into the unknown. And something else rises. But the important thing, funnily enough, is what's behind it. That's to say, the silence. And the concentration begins in that silence and arises out of that silence and everything is held by that that silence. It's a very helpful thing to do just to pick a sound like that and just follow it. It could be a motorbike passing and listen to it disappear. Another interesting one is switch off the television and keep watching it. Not for long, obviously. People would think you were crazy. But just watch it. And you become aware of yourself watching. And in fact, you begin to see that maybe everything is coming from you. So anyway, that's the first exercise in concentration for tonight. And in doing this exercise, we distinguish ourselves from the cat because cat would find it very difficult to continue to listen to the sound after it had gone, physically gone. And yet, you could do it simply by instructing the mind and the heart that they were to follow your instructions. You would have noticed that your attention is able to follow the sound into the silence and happily stay there. Now, this was a successful practice in willpower and willpower is necessary in concentration. This is a part of, shall we say, the discipline element. After devotion, discipline, then concentration. It's a part of the discipline element. So this is the state of the mind, one-pointed. And in this state, the mind is concentrated by this willpower and the mind is directed towards this object. The person has to really want their mind to be directed in this way. And we'll have to want this as much as a blind man wants to see with his attention. More than that, we will have to accept that this is a need for living our life effectively, not just a handy skill to acquire. In modern life, there is a lot going against this practice because everything seems to be designed to not require steady attention for any length of time. So nothing should be difficult, no sentence should be spoken for too long, preferably monosyllables. In watching a film or a television image or a video image, you'll notice the image must change every two, three seconds. If it's a video that goes with a song, much, much more quickly than that, maybe every second. If you're a television presenter or a radio presenter, you can't let a silence enter your radio program. Just can't let it happen. There's more than a second silence. It's pretty well disaster. So, rather than appreciating the silence, there's a lot going on to against that so that people come to forget 
that there is something behind all the events of a day. There's always something behind. We will find that the different sensations and a lot of issues are constantly knocking at the door of our consciousness. They want our attention. But we have the power to say no and to let them remain below the threshold of our consciousness. And this is willpower. But because in dealing with concentration we're dealing with our own nature here, it's always also beyond none of us to practice it. Therefore, there is a natural attraction to the art of concentration. From the very outset of the first course in the School of Philosophy, attention has been presented as the master key to every action and to efficient management of oneself and of one's life. And it's easy. This was the form of words that was used to help people develop attention. It is, rest your attention where the working surfaces meet. Rest your attention where the working surfaces meet. So, if you have a cloth and you're wiping down a surface, the working surface is between the cloth and the surface you're wiping. So if it's on a table, the cloth and the table. Just the space, in fact, between the cloth and the table. And just let the attention rest there. And you'll always find a place where the working surfaces meet. If you're on a bicycle, it will be where the wheels of the bicycle meet the road. If you're playing a racket game, it will be where the ball meets the racket. If you're talking, it will be where the voice is produced in the larynx. So there's always a working surface. And I hope that we could find some way of practicing this working surface idea and because it's helped many people over many years find some degree of rest in an activity. It's very interesting the way when we sit down to eat a meal, we take a mouthful and we sample it and we do our analysis, right? Is it warm enough? Is it too much salt? Is it right? In various ways and we make an assessment. And very often, that's the last mouthful we taste in the whole meal. We then go along to think about the problems of the day or chat to somebody that's there or whatever, but we don't continue this process of giving the attention to where the working surfaces meet, which is actually in the mouth. When we take a sip of tea or coffee at the interval, I hope that you might just taste that. Just taste and let your attention rest where that working surface is. If you're typing, the fingers seem to be able to see the keys. Now you just say that and you go and it's done. If you think about it too much, you can't type it. But the fingers seem to know. So all you need to do is find where the working surface is and then let it happen. The School of Philosophy has for many years consulted the Shankaracharya in India on matters of philosophical import. And 
he has spoken about attention and concentration quite a lot. The type of thing that he has said are the following. All activities will bear the stamp of efficiency and detachment. The state of peace will prevail and bliss will be experienced all round. This is when the activity is done with attention. So there'll be efficiency, detachment, as opposed to manic involvement, peace and bliss for everybody. And this is this very nice thing that it isn't just then for the person. It's peace for everyone. It's happiness for everyone. And he also said, if a situation imposes a problem, instantly the right answer is provided, which is both just and right. The mind knows what is right and wrong and acts accordingly. And we'll often see this happen when somebody presents us with a problem, say a child or a friend poses a problem. The mind works beautifully if it is just attending to the needs of that person lovingly, then the right and the just answer is provided. Also, when the mind is acting in the light of full attention, he said the following, whatever is decided becomes constant for all time. Everyone is treated exactly as oneself. There remains no preference and no prejudice. Reason prevails exactly, equally, for everyone with the same law. In fact, concentration is seen in the Vedic system as a means for freeing oneself, freeing the self, becoming free, liberation. And the process that has come about whereby we feel bound or caught up in things um, is a bit of history for, for each of us and the process of liberation will need close attention. So for the second exercise tonight, I'd like you to quieten the mind in the following way and then pay attention to the breathing of the body. So, it'll last for a minute. And I'd like you to be totally aware of your body uh, from tip to toe to watch it. And except for the natural breathing that's taken place, um, don't move at all, just watch the body. But be aware of the breath, each breath as it enters and as it leaves the body. So just watch this breathing body for a minute and concentrate on the natural breathing.
Well, very good. All right. Good. Uh, so you notice that the mind does quieten, that there is awareness of oneself, not necessarily defined by my personal qualities, but of a wider awareness of human qualities and of something much freer and larger than what I normally carry around. So it is a strange that the less I do, the bigger I get, the, the freer I become. So there's a second exercise that can be practiced. So another sage, Ramana Maharshi, he said, an average person's mind is filled with countless thoughts and therefore each individual one thought is extremely weak. When instead of there being many useless thoughts, there appears only one thought, it is a power in itself and has wide influence. Now that makes sense because if there are many thoughts being powered by our consciousness, they will necessarily be weak. If one thought alone is held in mind and is powered by the same amount of consciousness, it will have more power and more force in itself. And our problem is we just think far, far too much. I mean, we'd have some argument if all these thoughts were really, really important, you know, and were making a difference to the world. But a lot of the thoughts that are in our minds have very minor significance. So, instead of spreading our consciousness so evenly over so many thoughts, we could concentrate on one thought. That would make that one thought much more productive. And as he says uh, here, mind is only a bundle of thoughts. Stop thinking. And show me then, where is the mind? So if one feels that a quietened mind is really worth striving for, an earnestness or a determination or a willpower arises. Interest isn't enough. And this is the problem with the lecture on concentration, for we can feed interest, but the follow-through really is up to ourselves. And if there will be any follow-through, there'll have to be determination. Now, I'd just like to look at two things. One is the examples of concentration in an outward thrust, that's to say, that have a direct effect on things in the world. And secondly, to look at concentration going inwards. So, starting with the outward thrust, where we are carrying out a project or an action or anything in the, on the world stage, as Ralph Emerson put it, concentration is the secret of strength in politics, in war, in trade, in short, in all management of human affairs. So, it's the secret of strength.
So if you want to be a great politician, you have to master concentration. In war, you have to master concentration. Same in trade, economics, business world, the whole lot, everything. You have to master it if you want that secret of strength. There are some great scientists. They've known about the scientific theory and they've sought to put it into practice. And the trouble they've had, actually, in getting this principle in practice is quite astonishing, and the examples are brilliant. There would be Thomas Edison, inventor of the the light bulb, the record player, and 1,000 other devices. And he said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Now, what he means by perspiration is concentration, is attention. And the 1% inspiration, none of these guys knows where it comes from or when it comes. You might have heard last Sunday, I think it was, they were doing a, I think some sort of review of Michael Longley's life because he was 70, the poet Michael Longley. And it was really interesting to hear his experience of inspiration. Because if the muse does not deliver the poetry, he's lost. He doesn't know the muse. He doesn't know whether he's going to be able to write on that day. And he's gone a year in absence of the muse. And he could write nothing. A year. Imagine that for a poet. Be like losing your job. And he has to wait. And I've heard Heaney speak in exactly the same sense. Anyway, Longley is a really, really clear description of how he has to wait on the muse to deliver the lines to him. That's the inspiration bit. The perspiration bit is the writing. There are just so many of these type of examples. As Edison said, which I find very interesting the way he puts this, what you call God, I call nature, the supreme intelligence that rules matter. So he was aware and obviously looking for words to describe what he knew of this uh, source of genius, which he calls the supreme intelligence. That rules matter. Which, for many of us, would be an absolutely adequate description of God. A great scientist, Marconi, said the following about genius. It is the constant application of the mind to one thing. Again, you've got this sense of concentration, constant application to one thing. And you've got willpower, and you've got all these, the determination, and the devotion. And Marconi certainly was devoted. He started up in his attic, sending electrical waves, starting quite closely from one point to another point, maybe that distance, and then he moved them further apart, and eventually from one side of his attic to the other. That was his great success, and that was the beginning of the radio wave. And he took that quite far in his attic, and then his father discovered all this equipment, and 
he destroyed it all because it was getting in his way of being a doctor, which his father really wanted them to be. But being someone who understood about genius, he wasn't going to be deterred, and he carried on and had another 10 or 15 major failures in his efforts. But each effort seemed to produce the next step, and he gave us the entire radio telecommunications system through his work. Then there's Madame Curie, similar case, a lady in a man's world, not taken seriously in her early life, but with one thing in her mind, she persisted in the discovery of an element new to science called radium. And when the governing scientific body refused to recognize this element until one-tenth of a gram of pure radium chloride was isolated, and this would be a grain, she proceeded to undertake the job, which is an incredibly heavy physical toil for four years, which she did in that leaky shed. And it was very cold in winter and intolerably hot in summer, and she had to keep the process going all day. And uh, she got her gram of pure radium chloride and delivered it to them. There are similar stories of single-mindedness surrounding other great names like Kepler, Galileo, Isaac Newton. They're great books. Just read about their lives. They're really inspiring. Michelangelo, Leonardo, Van Gogh. In politics, you'd have a person like Churchill and his efforts uh, during the war. In exploration, you'd have Shackleton in South Georgia. In sport, so many examples today. You might remember, probably do remember this year's Wimbledon tennis final, but the previous one, it took place in the dark. I mean, it was so long and, and they wanted to finish it. But Nadal, who won it, he says he couldn't see the ball. I mean, it was that dark. But, I mean, he won. He won. So, something happened. But you might remember the commentators could not believe that this game was being played. Couldn't believe it. So, attention can sharpen the senses. You watch the golfer, the footballer, the rugby player, and with our televisions now, you get these most wonderful images of concentration just before the moments, the great moments. It is really quite captivating and should motivate anyone to develop concentration themselves. So now, that's the kind of the outward journey. But then there's an inward journey, and Maybe this is even greater. This is the one of self-discovery leading into meditation and then into union with the consciousness of the whole universe. So, we're just going to spend a little time looking at this use of concentration for the purpose of understanding ourselves. In this quotation it says, 
Thus, concentration is the perfect prayer and the perfect worship because it is only about uniting and merging. And concentration is the essence of prayer, of reflection, of meditation. And they involve words. And it is the power of concentration that causes these words to yield up their meaning. And the words surrender their meaning, or more accurately, it surrenders the meaning most appropriate to that moment. So this is a wonderful thing when words, great words, are really concentrated on and really used. One of the greatest exponents of this was a French philosopher called Simone Veil. She died in 1943, aged about 35. She was the most intelligent person in France, but that's the least important fact. She had spent her years looking for the truth, but she wanted also social justice, so she lived a life which was exactly equal to those who were at the front in the war, who wouldn't eat more than they would, she wouldn't live a life any more glorious than your regular work in a factory. She really did put herself out on a limb in the area of social justice. But she made an incredible journey within. And what she says then about prayer is very interesting. She said the following, In 1938, I spent 10 days at Solemne from Palm Sunday to Easter Tuesday following all the liturgical services. I was suffering from spitting headaches and each sound hurt me like a blow. Now these headaches, these were constantly with her for a large period of her life. She could either give in to them and her day would just collapse. I mean, she could do nothing. Or she would use the power of concentration to just pass through them. And here she says, By an extreme effort of concentration, I was able to arise above this wretched flesh, to leave it to suffer by itself, heaped up in a corner, and to find a pure and perfect joy in the unimaginable beauty of the chanting of the words. So, she was in this setting where there were beautiful words and beautiful sounds, but her head was splitting. And for some of us know what it's like. But she was able to just look through that, through the power of concentration, and out the far side. She's an uncanonized saint, this lady. And she's someone who breathed life into the words of prayer. The word is everything and it can be totally relied upon to yield up its goods as it penetrates within us and connects with our own essence. To quote her again, prayer consists of attention. It is the orientation of all the attention of which the soul is capable towards God. It is the highest part of attention only which makes contact with God. When prayer is intense and pure enough for such words 
for such contact to be established. But the whole of attention is turned toward God. And she also describes this in relation to school exercises for children. For she was a teacher at the beginning of her career. And she said, school exercises develop a lower kind of attention. School children should learn to like all these subjects because all of them develop the faculty of attention which, directed towards God, becomes the very substance of prayer. An exercise she did every day was to say the Lord's Prayer with total concentration on the words. Now this lady, up to the last two years of her life, wouldn't go near prayer. She wouldn't touch it. But she was a profoundly spiritual person. But when she met uh, this priest in the south of France, she seemed to take it up almost for him. But she took the Lord's Prayer and her only discipline was that when she started it, she had to concentrate without a break to the end of the prayer. And if her concentration broke at any stage, she'd just start again. She also did it in Greek. She taught herself ancient Greek and she taught herself Sanskrit. No bother at all. And if the attention slipped at all, she started again. So with this total attention, she at times could see her body praying from another place altogether. And through this process of concentrated recitation of the prayer, she found herself repeatedly in the presence of Christ. She was a Jew. She only recited it in ancient Greek, but it could be done in the vernacular, though it's maybe more difficult to concentrate without distraction on the words themselves when we've said it so many times up to now without much attention. It's quite useful to change the language. Now what she said then, I haven't got it on the slide, so I'll just read it to you. The virtue of this practice is extraordinary and surprises me every time I do it, even though I live it every day, and it goes beyond my expectation every time. Sometimes also during this recitation, or at other moments, Christ is present in person, but with a presence that is infinitely more real, more poignant, more clear, more full of love than the first time he took me. I would never have taken it upon me to tell you this, if she was writing a letter to this priest, if I wasn't leaving. And as I leave with more or less the thought of a probable death, and she was right, it seems to me that I do not have the right not to speak of these things. For after all, in all of this, it's not about me, it's about God. I have nothing to do with it. So this is another suggestion that I have for you, is to take something, and it could be a prayer, it doesn't have to be a prayer. Another Simaval took was George Herbert's poem on love. It's a very, very famous one on love, but my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But she also did the same thing with that giving total attention to that poem 
and obviously it's in English. And that too became transformative because it embodied love and it became absolutely transformative for us. So, we could take any great piece that has been written and give it total attention in this way and let it be transformative. Let the words live. And they will live through what you give them, through what concentration, what attention you give them. It's kind of just, really. The more attention we give, the more they yield up their goods. There is, at the end of another master's life, this was the end of Shakespeare's life, this is in The Tempest, and The Tempest is his last play, and these are the last words in The Tempest. So it's like, bye-bye. And he says, And my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. I think that is the last thing he wrote. And it's interesting that the use of prayer is here in the same sense of piercing and assaulting or reaching to mercy, which is the ultimate power in the universe, and it frees all faults. So here is a soul going free, and indeed in the tempest, that's what happens to Prospero. He goes free. Burns his books, breaks his rod, and goes free. So my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. Our own Yeats said, We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see it may be their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer perhaps even a fiercer life, because of our quiet. And so, to finish, in the philosophy course, we are presented with three conditions or states of mind. One is called sattva, which is the peaceful, clear, incisive state of mind. One is called rajas, which is the active state and one is called tamas, which is also still, but it's still with, it's a sort of deadened still. It's a sleepy still. It's an absorbent still. So there are the three states, and the whole universe is said to be made of these three qualities. And the effort of the philosopher or of a person who really wants to develop is to grow sattva, to grow sattva, to grow this clear, still, peaceful element or side of the mind. And so, concentration or attention is an absolute key ingredient to do that.
Now, there's, of course, a lot more to be discussed, but I think it would be very helpful now at this stage for us to just draw breath, have a cup of tea. And in the second half, just really to hear from you what you have heard, what you've picked up, how you see this subject, what your experience has been to date, because you all have had experience with this area, what problems you see with it, what problems you see with anything that I have said, what potential you see, and we could spend half an hour talking about that afterwards. Thank you very much. Thank you. By the way, you are going to be recorded for all eternity. There is a microphone back there, and if you have the courage to say anything, you will be engraved in a CD. (laughs) So, (laughs) no pressure. (laughs) Anybody like to say anything? And given your concentration, say, just give an example, say, the study of Sanskrit, and also say you have an interest in mathematics yeah. and want to study mathematics. Can you give your concentration to both of the subjects? Do you know, like, if you divert your concentration, say, away from the Sanskrit half to the Sanskrit and half to the mathematics, is that feasible? As long as you don't do it at the same time, say. <laughs> the question is, can you give attention to two different subjects? Or do you have to give it all to one kind of thing? be a total Sanskrit addict or a total mathematician addict? Well, the short answer to your question is there's no reason why not. But you have to go according to your liking, in a sense. You have to pick up where your talent is. And Einstein, if he had decided to put all his attention and effort into soccer, we wouldn't have had the theory of relativity And we mightn't have had even a very good soccer player. So you have to go according to your talent. So your talent that's there would be natural, that's within you? Yes. But you work on your strength. So if we were to really decide to apply concentration to an area, then we take what we are at the moment good at and then work to become better. That doesn't mean that every area of life doesn't benefit from such a thing as concentration. But if you're to make a real step or a real progress in this, simply pick what is natural to you and develop it through that talent. So it'll all come from that then? All come from that. You know you're saying putting your energies into things that are not permanent. Well, if you put your concentration into mathematics or to be a very good bridge player and all your energies into that, that is not a permanent thing. So are you wasting time in the context of what we're talking about? Are you wasting time by putting your energy into learning to be a very good bridge player or a good mathematician or a good something else? It's a nice question. And there is absolutely going to be an outward motion with our talent and with concentration. 
so whatever area we pick, then there's definitely going to be a very great flowering if our concentration is right on that and goes right with it. But there is an inward journey at the same time. And both are needed. So you do find that people who have made great progress in concentration in terms of developing, say, in science or in art, they seem to have a wonderful inner understanding as well. And it's great to read their thoughts, quite apart from their thoughts about what they're doing, but their thoughts about life and understanding themselves. We will find exactly the same thing. The more, in fact, attention is given to the talent we're developing, the more we develop inwardly as well. There is also a behind-the-stage process. For instance, if you speak to somebody out of the Indian Vedantic tradition, the first three or four hours of every day is spent in inward development. It's all meditation and prayer and study and reflection. They wouldn't dream of going out till they'd done that. They would start quite early, I mean very early in our terms, in the morning, and then by the time the day begins to take off, they've done the inward work. Same with Mother Teresa and her nuns. They would always spend at least two hours in the morning in prayer and contemplation. And without that, they wouldn't be able to sustain themselves in that work that they were doing. So there's an inward part and there's an outward part. Is that all right? Are you saying that prayer and contemplation are the same, or do you see them as two different things? Concentration is a tool with which you approach anything. So it can be applied in a whole range of different places. And one of these places is prayer. So concentration is applied, essentially it's to words, and to penetrate the meaning of a word and then when that's done properly penetrate the meaning of a sentence and that's the prayer so it's a tool and it can be implied anywhere but you see prayer as different not a tool well prayer in the same way as meditation or reflection in terms of the inward process of understanding oneself There are these three, prayer, reflection, meditation. And so concentration applied to those is going to open up those areas. Then there's the outward flow of concentration to the things of the outer world, like if you're an artist or you're a great cook, that's also going to need that. But in terms of, is it different, it's an intricate part of prayer, and it's an intricate part of the other activities as well. It's kind of everywhere. Once you really begin to look at it, it it is needed everywhere. Does that satisfy your inquiry? Yes. Okay. Where would you start in terms of, you know, apart from the clock exercise and, you know, maybe meditation, where would you recommend to start to get improvement in concentration? Well, just there, those exercises are a very good beginning. 
And just to extend them a little bit from a minute to two minutes to three minutes to four to five. I know we would love that five minutes for that in 24 hours, but to do it even for five minutes is a challenge. Well, the way we think about it today, this is how crazy our day has become. To think that we could put aside five minutes to do this. Now that's an exercise. So then you will find that you will want to pay attention to other things that happen during the day. So when somebody is talking, you will decide to really listen. Or if you're just walking, you will decide to really concentrate on just the walking or just to the sound of the wind or the bird or the whatever, or just to writing. And so what begins as a kind of artificial practice, like I'm going to sit down, I'm going to look at this clock. I mean, you wouldn't be telling everybody that you're doing this. What begins as an artificial practice has a power of its own, which you then take into the, the daily work. You can begin to talk about it to young people. If you have children, talk about it. They've not been taught it. Teachers, I mean, they say pay attention, but that's it. Just say it. Pay attention. Pay attention. But nobody really addresses this subject, so it hasn't been analysed enough, and we really need to do that. And then, of course, they watch you as you move and as you talk and as you do things, and they pick up the quality of attention that you do give to things. And so it's very helpful for the adult to be aware, if there are children around, that he's being watched, and the children will become like him. Is that good news or bad news? <laughs> very helpful. question is, is concentration the same as attention, or is there a difference? Concentration is just focused attention. I mean, very focused attention. You could call it concentrated attention. But it's putting all the power of the heart and the mind onto one thing. So once attention becomes single-pointed, then it's concentration. You could say concentration is single-pointed attention. That would be a kind of a definition. But there's something about it that has to do with willpower, which is like its twin, um, because we really have to be determined that the mind is going to pay attention to this one thing. So it's like a subset of attention, single-pointed attention. Yes, what else? I hope I can make these help understood. I used to go to a, an old Jesuit priest in Zion Hill and he talked a great deal about coming out of the head into the body. Mm. Is that process of concentration linked initially to moving out of the thought process down into, into the body? Does that tie in there at all, or is it something different? So, like, from the head, sort of moving down to here, this part, when he says yeah. the body, this section. Yeah. Sort of, and yeah. Tolle goes into it in a, in a yeah. substantial way. Yeah. I mean, that's excellent. Yeah. Very good advice. Yeah. 
Because the head is the thinking part, and this is where we have our million useless thoughts. With concentration, the attention does move down, and the heart is located here. The heart isn't located up here. I mean, you don't say, oh, how I really love you. No. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's all, you know, oh, how I really love you. We know there's a head, and that's where this buzz is, with all these things, and then there's a heart. And now, once the mind kind of sinks down, it unites with the heart, and there is the power. In these exercises, even in watching a clock, the attention sinks from this up here to downward. It's very interesting because Again, in the Vedantic system, they know how it all works. It all, in fact, begins in the navel, which is the center of the being, and consciousness moves up from there to the heart, to the mind, which is in this area of the throat, and then the tongue and out. There's an upward movement in, say, speech from there up and out. Taking a word back, through concentration, to what it really means, there's a reverse process happen. And it starts up here, actually in the head, and it sinks down and it connects with the heart. Then there's none of the busyness, and that's where it really opens up. So, when we say, Our Father, or Hallowed be thy name, if it is to mean anything, it's happening here, and it's not a heady understanding. Name is understood here, and Father is understood here. So, God bless the priest. <laughs> he did, yeah. And did he change it by the words he spoke to? In that way? No, it took me probably 10, 12 years to assimilate this. Initially, it was a heady experience for me, listening to him. I didn't know what he meant. Now, this was in a class. It wasn't yeah. me as an individual. He, he, gave a, he was from Milton and gave lectures in Sign Hill. He was quite well known, Tony Baggett. But it took a number of years for me to be able to assimilate that and I did it very much in conjunction with Eckhart Tolle in The Power of Now. It wasn't a huge struggle. It was a revelation, really, and it came very gradually. Mm. That sounds spot on. Mm. It sounds right on. You should just continue to see how the great works and great words do work at this level. And even when sometimes you can hear great poetry and you're not sure, even great music, and you can't say you understand it at this level, but it's some understanding down in the heart. So something's happening down there, and that's the deeper meaning, and it's very motivating. When you manage to get the whole of the mind and the whole of the heart united, then there's real, real flowering of the meaning, and that's the work of concentration. Hi. Oh, yes, thank you.
The question is, if you have to do something as part of your work that doesn't come naturally to you, for example, to give a presentation or to give a talk, can you use concentration to improve that skill? And if so, how can you do it? I have to give a presentation very soon. <laughs> <laughs> this is excellent. It's an excellent working surface, this is. Because you are going to concentrate on this. There's no doubt about that. So it's then a question of how to really give it well. All the stuff at the moment that comes up in your mind about presentation, most of it is completely irrelevant. That's just the mind worrying about this and that. And when you actually do give it, it's completely different anyway. I mean, even this talk was given last night in Cork. Can you imagine? The experience, totally, totally different. You've no idea, not a notion, what it's going to be like. What concentration will do, it will pick out what really is essential to this process of presenting something. And it'll actually order and structure the thing for you. It will then allow you, when you are presenting it, just to focus on the key elements of it. You won't be too worried about other things around it, like what the room is like, or who's there particularly. I mean, there'll be information that is presented, but it won't take from your concentrated effort to deliver the essence of what you're going to be delivering, whatever that is. Don't take away from that. So concentration will deliver that lecture. You can let it do it. All you have to do is, in the preparation, make sure there's concentration and just decide what are the key elements. That's all you have to do is stay true to those elements. Make sure your heart is united also in presentation with your subject matter or no one will believe you, no one will take it and you just sound empty. By the way, whatever it is on, what's it on? It's on training and development. Yeah. On training and development, where I have to give a presentation as part of the second module. Yes. In about two weeks. Yes. Well, you have been trained, haven't you? And you have been developed. And so you'll know what you're talking about. So that's not going to be a problem. But that's what they'll want to hear. I mean, the subject is one thing. But in a lecture, you get a lot of the person, too. You get a lot of them and of the substance of the person. Do you know, it's like when you miss a lecture as a student, and you say, well, give me the notes. You can't understand them, really. Because when you really are at the lecture, you get something of the person giving them. You, know, you get part of the lecturer. It's like these, give this PowerPoint presentation to somebody. They say, oh, you're interesting. And fire on with their life. <laughs> as if it was totally irrelevant. But an event happens. An event is happening tonight. Something's happening. That's all the result of concentration. So anyway, that's how to do it. Yeah, another question? Very good. Yes, thank you, sir. Yeah, the more you talk about it, you're entering into a spiritual dimension. 
And I think the more we relax and concentrate, we're joining with something more powerful, or maybe our higher self, mm. which is part of, of God. And it seems to me that when we look around the world at the moment, it's in a terrible state because people don't know how to relax or concentrate. To me, it'd be very important that this is taught in schools, in primary school. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you get a chance to say it to anybody, any of the powers that be, you know, just far ahead, it's the most important thing because once you have this tool, then you can apply your mind to anything and make it work. It's very simple. You start by teaching them to just drop what is going on in the head. Because by definition, almost by definition, it's useless. And they're only doing it because they've seen other people do it. This is when they're four. They had nine months inside, and they've had four years outside. All the time, they've seen people disappearing into a world of thinking. So, first thing is just teach them that actually you'd be much better just listening, just being here all the time, just be here, just be here. The man without any sight, he said that the attention was total and it was all the time. It wasn't intermittent. He had to stay in this attentive world for survival. Since that's a natural condition, that's what we should be aiming for. And so the first thing to do with children is to just settle them. Let everything go, just connect. Then when they get into an activity, just to concentrate fully on the activity and enjoy that process. And when it's over, it's over. There are then various exercises which can be added on to that, but in the end we're trying to get this sense that one-pointedness, adherence to a single idea or a single principle is the essence of learning how to concentrate. Patanjali said that this awareness of the presence of God was it. And if they could manage that, then get them to concentrate on one of the senses if they couldn't quite manage the presence of God thing, do that. That's good advice. And the advice has been there for these thousands of years. And we've been busy ignoring it. Okay. Any more questions? Thank you. We were speaking during the break about crosswords. Do you think there's any benefit in that kind of concentration or not? Well, yes. I mean, any effort in this work is useful. But it's most useful if it's on the best material. The crossword is about words and must be good. Personally, I find the practice in the two-minute stillness very difficult. So... Yeah. That's why I was wondering, is there an alternative way to try to get the benefits of concentration if you can't seem to be still for two minutes a day? <laughs> yeah, just build it up a bit. I'd say those practices that we did in the first half are essential. And the crossword is optional. 
because this is dealing directly with our mind. You see, the other is dealing with just learning how to concentrate on something. It's an outward thrust. And it's this inward thrust that we also need to get you know, a real handle on, a feel for. Yeah, I, I did the evening classes for two years and I still couldn't be still for two minutes. Well, also only two years. So, and also is a question of how well you did in evening classes, two hours, right? Then you've got another six days and 22 hours to put in until the next evening class. Now, it's a question of what happens to every minute of those six days and 22 hours. Well, you're practicing. Yes. <laughs> right. Honestly, I, I want to. Well, good. <laughs> I think our wise men here that have projected all these hours this evening, they would say that practice will make perfect. It's just to renew that and know that the only person who's going to develop this power or this strength is oneself. And no one is going to be able to do it for us, no matter who you get. I mean, say you get a really brilliant teacher of concentration and you meet him tomorrow in Grafton Street, sign up for, you know, an intensive course. In the end, you're going to do the work. All he's going to be able to do is give you encouragement and give you a few ideas. That's why I said that this lecture, if it was on slimming, it would have been no use to you and then concentration, no use to you, unless there is some practice that will work because your mind is not different to my mind or this lady's mind. It's the same stuff. Inherent in that is a power, and it's a power of concentration. Why not let us develop it without the shock of being blind, or some tragic loss that we have to work our way through, or splitting headaches, or whatever else it is. Why not develop it while we're in the whole of our health and with the comfort that we do have, just be determined that the comforts that we do have don't matter. Just get the mind on what really does matter. Well, we can. This is just an observation. I was reading a book there recently about a gentleman. He was a holy man, but he was also part of the Indian army, a marksman. What he would do, actually, he said, actually, I wouldn't pull the trigger. You actually squeeze the trigger. I wouldn't squeeze the trigger until I had my sights right on the target. And then I would wait actually for a pause between my breaths. I would wait then until the pause between the breath coincided with the pause with the heartbeat. And then I would squeeze the trigger. And I never missed. <laughs> yeah. Which does remind me of a similar story. Again, this is from the Vedic tradition. The greatest archer of all time was a man called Arjuna. He took part in this mighty battle called the Battle of Kurukshetra, which is about 5,000 years ago. When he was being trained with his brothers and many of his clan by a great teacher, he was called up by his teacher and he lined them all up and said, you're going to be shooting at this bird. Now, it was a clay bird. Of course, its eye was clearly shown and all the rest and it had a few feathers stuck to it, and then there was the tree. And he caught up the first guy who was 
senior to Arjunan. He said to him, what do you see? I see a tree and I see branches and I see leaves and I see a bird in the tree. Drona, who is the teacher, said, well, well done, well done, off you go. And he didn't get a chance to shoot. And he called up another and he said, what do you see? And he said, oh, I see branches and I see leaves and I, I see bird. He said, well done, now off you go. He went through them all. Eventually, Arjuna, who was at the end of the line, he calls up and he says, what do you see? He says, I see the eye of the bird. And he said, what else do you see? And he said, I only see the eye of the bird. And he said, shoot. He was the only one allowed to shoot. What is the moral of that story? Be at the end of the line. Be at the end of the line. <laughs> if you're in the right story. <laughs> You have to make sure you're in the right story. Didn't give him that answer at the start of the line. No. <laughs> there would have been no story to tell. I would say be single-minded and don't be distracted. Yeah, that's right. So, exactly. That's obviously, is it. This is the thing, it's single-pointed attention. And so, I believe Arjuna when he said that, he only saw the eye. And everyone else saw other things. Arjuna saw that the eye was what he intended to hit. This bird was the thing that he was going to shoot. Yeah. And so his full vision, his full intent was on the eye of the bird because that was all that was actually important to his focus. Yes, quite, quite. And the others were not as good archers because they saw more. They saw more. And it's rather like being in a math class, you know, with a whole lot of children, you know. Some see the people in front of them and the notes are being passed and the ink is flying everywhere and they see their books and they see, you know, and there's always one guy who's there who's just listening to what the teacher's saying. And he's the guy who doesn't need to be taught. He just laps it all up and then he does his work. So that's concentration. They are a delight. <laughs> Thank you. What can you do when your attention is captured? Let's say if you have a problem or grief or something and that's intruding on your concentration. There are two things here. First is the war between the thing that's wanting your attention and what you think your attention ought to be on. That war is false. So you have to first of all put your attention on one thing and then when that's solved, move it to the other. So, if there is some problem or if it is an area where there's grief or something of that nature, one really should look at it. One really should look at it. And resolve that. You know, to the extent it can be resolved at that moment, at that time, and maybe if it's a big grief or something, there may be other times you need to return to it. But at that moment, give that just total attention and resolve it. 
you know, it's like if this is a fair analogy. I was in Kerry on Monday. A 91-year-old lady had died. This was a relation, my wife. And her body was in the main room of the house. When we arrived, we were brought in. And I'd imagine you'd come and you'd kind of be there for a moment. Then you'd be off, you know, with the rest of the family in some other room drinking tea and cakes and things like this. Not at all. You're brought in and you stayed there for hours. And the tea was brought in and the cakes were brought in and the chat was had and all sorts of chat about everything. And the body was there all the time. Like the most natural thing in the world. There is a decision from tradition to resolve a grief in a certain way and I said, I must tell my sons about this. <laughs> so they would do the same thing. <laughs> when the time came, you know, it seemed to be a most wonderful kind of resolution of an issue. Now, just to bring that back to your question, I mean, bring the whole thing to the focus of the attention, give it all the attention that it needs, and then say, that's it for the moment. Now, go to the other thing. But the battle between one thing and another is really useless. It means the attention isn't being given properly to either. Start with the problem later on, then go on to the other thing. Does that make sense as a kind of a strategy? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so, do you want to say something else? No, it's just, I suppose, that I've heard of you know situations as well where somebody said their concentration was lost you know, because of something. So I suppose... That's where the question came from. Yeah, they should give their attention to that thing that keeps pulling and solve that as much as it could be solved at that time. Thank you. Yeah. You can actually confront the yes. problem. If you're going for a walk and you have some sort of a problem, even though you're walking up a hill or on the problem. Yeah, you don't see anything. And you just yeah. the thing comes in right. and you just, at the end, it's it's come, come back from a walk, yeah. a fresh, you have a worry that keeps on worrying. You attack the worry, is it? Yeah, just give it full attention and solve it as much as can be solved. Because then you have to admit that beyond that, there's no more that can be done with this at this moment. So just let it rest. And that decision then to let that thing rest. Because there's nothing else that can be done. It will rest. And then you can give your attention back to this wonderful scenery. Or the walking, or the air, or the conversation, or whatever. But address, really address, with the full powers of the mind, any problem that arises and is competing for attention. It will lie down. But it's like training a dog. It will sit, and it will lie with your instructions, that it must be given the attention. Thank you. Concentration, as you've outlined it there to us, and meditation, as we practice it in the school, are they one and the same, or is there a difference between the two? Yes. 
meditation without concentration isn't meditation. So meditation must use concentration. The concentration is the tool. In meditation, certainly in the meditation that we practice, we have a sound called the mantra. The mantra we follow. And so the total attention, the total concentration just on that sound is all that is required in meditation. And it is a supreme practice. It's like I was saying that when a word is concentrated upon and the meaning of it is then released in the same way with this sound, and it's a very special sound, when the attention is given to it fully, then it flowers. The whole universe was created on sound. So, if you want to get back to the beginning, as it were, do it through sound. You won't do it through sight and the other senses, but go through sound. It's the finest of the senses. It's no coincidence that it was said that in the beginning was the word. Meditation uses concentration. Meditation develops concentration. Would that make sense? Who next? It's not so much a question as uh, an observation. I was listening to you there now, and I think you should have come here years ago. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> because I think after tonight I'm a genius. Yeah, you are a genius. Huh? Anyway, that's joking, but seriously now, there was a quotation there about nature. Yeah. Well, I've been a student of nature now since I was a small boy. And I'd like to pass it on here to everyone here tonight. There's a lot of searching for God now and blaming God and all the rest of it. Stick your head out the window in the morning and just lean and listen and look. And he's outside the window. I just like to pass that on. I have no questions, but I recommend it to anyone. That's the answer. That's the real truth. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. He's also looking out of the window. He could be the queen too. Aye. That's the trouble. <laughs> so, well, this is the thing. I mean, what causes you to open it? What causes you to stick your head out? What causes you to see what you see? Hear what you hear? That's the question. Thank you very much. There's one very important ingredient in all that, and that's solitude. You, you want a few minutes solitude to get down to business. It's a very good place to start. It's a very good place to collect one's powers. It doesn't mean that it can't happen in O'Connell Street or whatever. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that there's nothing else needed, really. You need nothing else. You've got it all. That's what solitude would testify to. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Any more observations or questions?
In the earlier part of your talk, you mentioned a boy back in the time of World War Two, Jack. I can't remember his surname. And you made the comment that he had a vision of trees moving towards him. And he sort of surmounted the disability that he suffered as a younger boy. And I was just wondering, because he had the experience of seeing trees in his earlier life, did that sort of help him to understand, you know, the darkness that he now found himself in? And also the concentration level that one has to sort of focus in on and to deal with one issue at any one time. Would you think or consider, you know, that all the other issues that one has in one's life, if one sort of wrote them down and dealt with them one by one, would be a help to surmounting pressures and issues one has in one's life? Yes. Yes, can I just... Go back to the quotation that was used in the very beginning, because this guy went blind when he was seven, so he certainly saw trees and the rest before that. It does appear that it wasn't through imagination he approached these trees and knew of their presence. He knew. He just knew. Through attention, as if in place of eyes, he gained attention. And he knew everything about tree that would normally be revealed to us through our eyes. He puts it, being attentive unlocks a sphere of reality that no one suspects. So he wouldn't have suspected this was possible until he developed it through loss of his eyesight. If, for instance, I walked along a path without being attentive, then he says he, he wouldn't see anything. When I awakened my attention, however, every tree immediately came to me. <laughs> it's kind of as if he's gone within, you know, and being within, he's the master of the universe and everything comes to him. It's an extraordinary description. This must be taken quite literally. He's not having us say, look, this is his imagination. It's quite literally, the trees came to him. Every single tree projected its form, its weight, its movement, even if it was motionless in my direction. I could indicate its trunk, the place where its first branches started, even when several feet away. It's a power that he opened up through practice. And forced on him, all right, but through practice. There must have been a great willpower there to carry that through and determination. We're being asked in concentration to practice willpower. It is a necessary ingredient. Rather than being spoiled with five senses, it would be better for us to kind of pretend that we hadn't got them. And just try to develop the power of concentration. It's just so easy for us with five senses. And we miss everything. Take away one of the senses and look what happened to them. 
Your second question was about managing the mind, really, because the mind gets very cluttered with stuff and is very acquisitive. So it literally piles stuff up, rather like my office and maybe your office. It just gets accumulated. You don't know how it does it, but it does. Certainly writing things down is helpful for it and prioritizing them and crossing them up and all that sort of thing. That's useful practice. Doing it with attention is an even better practice. If we're talking about concentration, practice those few exercises that we have. Before you take on any task, use one of them. And then approach the task. Yes? Next question. I suppose I'm just trying to reconcile concentration with being in the now, like and when to use both or either. For me, concentration would have been, my main idea of it would have been, say, studying or reading, to just use sight and to close off hearing and all the other senses. So to just use sight. Whereas being in the now, I think my understanding of it is to use all your senses and be open to anything that presents itself. So I'm just trying to reconcile those two ideas. Yes, well, they're in the same field. So, you know, you're, you're in the right area with both of them. There's a general state of attention, of awareness. We used to have this, the, the old part one. There were a number of states of attention. One was attention open, but in the sense of just out there, just aware but open to anything. And then there was attention caught and held, which is just for a moment, and then attention controlled, which would be the concentration. Or, after being caught and held, it could go another direction, which was, it would be attention captured, and be captured by something, and then that led to pathos at the bottom of the diagram, and seem to remember. But attention just caught and held for a moment, and then controlled is this state of concentration. So you're open and just being in the present. That's attention open, and then caught and held, concentrate. So that's the root. Do you know, it's really that first state is necessary for concentration to develop. The breathing exercise is a very, very good one. Just attend to the breathing and the rhythm of the breathing and just watch that. Do nothing else. And that starts as a very open state of attention and then the attention does concentrate more and more precisely on the breathing. So it's a kind of a development. Do you get the sense of that? Yeah, good. Good? Could you say something about the development of willpower? Yes. It's a very profound power. All we need in order to achieve anything, be it to succeed in our studies or if it is to penetrate the meaning of some work or some word, 
there will be arising to meet that a power or an energy from within. That's called willpower. It's your own nature. Nothing that you have ever really learned, in fact, was learned without willpower. And it would be the same in the animal kingdom. When you watch the determination of a bird to build a nest or a cat to be fed, something arising from within them which gives them all the energy they need to accomplish the task. All we have to do is hold the task clearly in mind and not forget it. We tend to start on something and that we forget the task or we get distracted from it. So if we hold the task in mind, then the willpower will be there to accomplish it. And the more it's practiced, the stronger it becomes. The good news is it is your own power and it comes from you. It's not something you have to import, but practice does it. Say you want to learn something. Say you want to learn a poem. If you have willpower, you learn it. But you'll start off and you'll muster all your capacity concentration and after a while, you will meet a wall of boredom or want to do something else, so you didn't really need to be doing this anyway, silly thing to do, wasting time, something will come up to move you on to something else. And what willpower does is it keeps you on track. Because you've decided you're going to learn this. So it brings you back to it. And it will carry you through it. No one with any note, having done anything useful, has ever managed to achieve it without developing enormous willpower. And all the people we admire and have read about have wonderful willpower and we adore them for it. Yet a Nelson Mandela in the freedom struggle is at Marie Curie producing a gram of this stuff called radium, be it a sculpture by Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. Astonishing willpower to carry those things through to the end. So, there are a few things. I hope there are some practical tips towards how to develop concentration and it is obviously a most profoundly important tool for a philosopher to know about and even if we want to lead a good and useful life we have to develop this part. So, thank you very much.